This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Bell Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal and Wongal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the lands, and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. I am gone, though I am here. There is no loving you. Nay, I pray you, let me go. You dare easier be friends with me than fight with mine enemy. Oh, that I were a man. What, bear her in hand until they come to take hands, and then with public accusation, uncovered slander, unmitigated rancor. Oh God, that I were a man. I would eat his heart in the marketplace. Princes and counties, surely a princely testimony, a goodly count, count comfect, a sweet gallant, surely. Oh, that I were a man for his sake, or that I had any friend would be a man for my sake. But manhood is melted into courtesies, valour into compliment, and men are only turned into tongue and trim ones too. He is now as valiant as Hercules that only tells a lie and swears it. I cannot be a man with wishing, therefore I will die a woman with grieving. Welcome to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was Beatrice from Act 4, Scene 1 of Much Ado About Nothing, read by our guest this week. She is a Year 12 student and head girl at the International Grammar School in Sydney. She made her professional theatre debut at the age of 14 in the National Theatre of Parramatta's production of Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam, for which she was nominated as Best Newcomer at the Sydney Theatre Awards. The following year, she appeared in Bell Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus and then reprised her role in Sunbeam, this time at Belvoir. She is also the star of the acclaimed web series Amazing Grace, which she co-created and wrote with her mum, filmmaker Julie Money. It's won prizes around the world, including Best Female Performance at the London International Web Fest and an Award of Excellence at IndieFest USA. She's recently been awarded a Youth Community Service Award by the Governor of New South Wales and will be speaking at the upcoming UNESCO World Youth Conference on Kindness. It is my great pleasure to welcome Grace Truman. Grace, welcome to Speak the Speech. Hi, James. Thank you so much. Oh, it's so great to have you here, Grace. And you know what? You have chosen, I think, one of my absolute favourite scenes from all of Shakespeare. I love this. It's absolutely brilliant. But can you please put it in context for us? What's just happened? Sure. Well, Beatrice, I think, is in quite a spin at the moment. Um, mm. It's following on from a wedding between her cousin, her cousin, of course, Hero, and um, Claudio. What was meant to be a wonderful day was totally spoiled by mm. um, Claudio and the prince accusing uh, Hero of basically having cheated on Claudio the night before um, her wedding. <sighs> and Beatrice feels totally um, betrayed, I think, by all the men basically yep. in her world. Yep. Um, this was meant to be a day of so much joy for Hero, and Hero is the closest, I mean, the closest family she really has um, in the play. Mm. 
Um, mm. So to see her cousin betrayed like that is unfathomable for her. Yeah. Then she's also had um, Benedict, this person who she's been having this very um, very conflicted relationship with, just profess <laughs> that he loves her. But yeah. yeah, she's a bit all over the place. I mean, what amazing storytelling from Shakespeare. To ha- the moment that Benedict and Beatrice finally declare their love for each other is also overshadowed by this extraordinary, horrible thing that's just happened. And these boys, look, this play, isn't it? It's, it's about just boys behaving badly. I mean, these guys are just a bunch of idiots. They don't, for, for at no point do they actually try and go up to Hero and go, so what's happened? Did you, uh, you know, did you really have a relationship with someone else? What's going on? They just decide to shame her in front of the whole congregation. Uh, yeah, and I mean, for me, that kind of parallels with Othello. Like, why didn't you just ask Desdemona? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, right. But yeah, yeah, that that female voice. Why didn't you think it was valid? Or why why didn't you think that her opinion mattered at this moment, which mm. was really all about her? I love the way that you've um, kind of edited. I mean, the, the bit that you just read is a couple of speeches of Beatrice um, put together where we really get to hear what she thinks of men and the way that they have become. And what, what does she say? What, what is she saying about men's language and what it's turned into? Oh, well, it's that whole thing of words and actions and yep, how, yep. how we say one thing and do another how we're so willing to say I like to profess our love and um, swear things because Benedict has just professed he loves Beatrice mm. so much and yet he's mm. not willing to do the one thing that she wants most which is to kill Claudio in kill this moment yeah, um, yeah. which is I mean I mean I don't know if that's a reasonable thing to ask at this point <laughs> but it's it's really what she wants in this moment because there seems to be no other solution for her and yeah. and so this person who has just professed that he loves her to the ends of the earth and back is not willing to do this for her. That's right. Well, really what she wants is an ally, doesn't she? She wants someone to say, I believe Hero, I believe you, I'm on your side, I'm not just going to go and back up the boys again. And Benedict, at the beginning of the scene, doesn't look, because she says kill Claudio, which, by the way, now you've played this role, haven't you? You did it in the school play um, this year. That line kills, doesn't it? I mean, every night... The audience goes bananas when you when you say kill Claudio. Is that did you experience that? Absolutely. It's it's like some sort of switch has been flicked. Um yeah. <laughs> people don't don't see it coming. I mean, That's also right. because in the wedding scene, Beatrice is so quiet. Mm, She's like mm. been seething the whole time. She has so yeah. so little in that wedding to say. Um, so when it just kind of explodes out of her, it's a really I think it's a really powerful moment. It's amazing. And, and his response is not for the wide world. So she's like, okay, well, you've made your choice, mate. You're going to go and, and still be with the boys and back them up. But then what happens by the end of the scene? By the end of the scene, um, Benedict does pledge to um, challenge Claudio to a duel where um, yeah. Yeah, it'll be basically a showdown. Yeah, so finally he agrees that he's going to be her ally, take her side and actually believe Hero and Beatrice, um, which is a big step forward for him because you never think that of Benedict. You never think he's going to be the kind of bloke who would who would change like that. Mm, and a big step forward, I think, for their relationship because it's been hinted at that they might have had some sort of history before then and that mm-hmm. Beatrice has been betrayed in some way by him previously. It shows that their relationship is really strengthening. But perhaps my favourite thing about this speech that you've just read is the seething anger sitting under there. What do you think? What's the source of that anger? What is it that she's frustrated about? I think she's so frustrated with her lot in life. I think yep. she 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 says, oh, I, oh, if I were a man, I wish I were a man. I don't think she 
doesn't necessarily want to be a man, but she she feels like as a woman, there's only so far that you can get. And mm-hmm. that's what is um, that that oppressiveness is what's really causing her this anguish and this anger um, in this yeah. in this speech. Mm. Eat his heart in the marketplace. What an extraordinary image that is. She wishes that she could just tear him apart. That fury is in there. Um, But of course, at that point, obviously, she's not able to. And so all of that frustration bubbles up. What was your favorite thing about performing Beatrice on stage doing this show? It was the first actually comedic role I'd played. So that was definitely okay. um, a shift because just the banter between Beatrice and Benedict is so yeah, much nice. fun. The the yeah. the fast paced, so quick, um, mm-hmm. and also just so clever. So I was I was always impressed by Beatrice as a character because her wit was so sharp. And yeah, yeah so it was it was such a, a joy to have that banter and to play that out. Um, mm. And I I guess the other thing I liked about Beatrice is her connect i guess her connections to people within the um the play and how she is so willing to stand up to the men in this play and challenge yeah. them and i i loved that aspect of her character too and she's so great with with words and language and of course so is benedict but i'm just looking at this speech now i mean it's it's very deliberate kind of alliteration here you know manhood is melted Count Comfect and um, Tongue and Trim Ones too turned into Tongue and Trim Ones too. You know, she's, it's almost like she's spitting this speech out at him. It's extraordinary. It's, it's beautiful, yeah. Mm. Grace, you already have a number of professional credits under your belt. How did that all start for you? You were 14 when you got your first professional credit. How did that begin? Oh, gosh. Well, um, that's a very good question. I still can't believe it most days. <laughs> I guess growing up in a family who were kind of always in the industry, my mum is a, um, a film director and producer and my dad was mm. a script writer and actor. And so I'd kind of been around the, the performing industry for a long, a long time. Yeah. But uh, to, really, to get into theatre, it was, it was just an audition I found out about really. And yeah, yeah. Um, it was re- meeting the right people at the right time. I think that's, mm. that's the thing with acting. It's so there's talent but there's also luck in the right place in the right time and that that's I think so um so key oh yeah yeah and that um you know actors find throughout their life is uh it's a combination of being in the right place in the right time and of course um keeping up your skills in your training and yeah and keeping up your, your spirits as well yes were you 15 when you did Titus Andronicus yes I was 15? I, yeah. yep yep you would have been 15. 15 now what an experience because that production was different from any other Shakespeare production that I've ever seen, any other Bell Shakespeare production that's been on in recent years. Uh, it was intense, let's put it that way. And yep. you might say that it contained, you know, if you were going to put a disclaimer, you might say this show contains adult themes. Okay. So, <laughs> yes. so how did you, as a 15 year old, coming into that rehearsal room, how? What was that experience like and how did they adjust the rehearsal process and room to accommodate for you and the other kids who were in that play? Wow. Well, um, I think like you said, James, I, I'd never even I'd never even seen theatre like what we were produ- producing, let alone try to act in a, a play of this kind. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, the experience was, it was really incredible. All the cast and crew were so patient with us and mm-hmm. also... They they wanted 
to help us learn. And that was such an amazing experience, just being able to be taken under the wing of all these people who just wanted to encourage us and to continue our journey um, learning and appreciating theatre and Shakespeare. And it was such a joy. Mm. Um, it, It was overwhelming at points. And I can remember myself walking around in breaks during the rehearsals and just thinking, oh, my gosh, how did I get here? I mean, are they sure they wanted me? Like, because there's also, there was so much improvisation as part of Titus and I had never done, like really never done improvisation before. So I I, I was very out of my element and I I just come out of the rehearsal room sometimes and think, wow, wow, that was really different. I'm, I don't know how that went. And also because improvisation, you you don't really know how how it goes. You just play it out. So that's something I guess I wasn't really used to. And also coming from a school environment where you always get feedback on work. work. You always get a mark or you always Mm -hmm. got a task that you're kind of working towards. Kind of doing this very free flow improvisation stuff um, Mm. was actually Mm. challenging because you, you didn't know what you were working towards. You were just discovering as you went. So then how did the director, Adina Jacobs, uh, shape that into the show so you you guys are, are off and improvising and then eventually decisions have to be made which yes. are then able to be replicated so how was that process um so well we would do kind of improvisation sessions and um, we'd have all these different props um, at our disposal mm. and we'd be given kind of a word like or a, uh, um, a sentence or a line or we might have some sort of music yeah. going while we were doing this improvisation session and Adina would watch and from at the end of that, she kind of, I, I think she'd been taking notes throughout, but she kind of pick and choose bits and we'd come back to them the, yeah, right. that that afternoon or the day after and we kind mm-hmm. of start piecing them together. But we had also, we had, of course, the text to work around. So it was, yeah, intertwining those offers that were made during those improvisation uh, sessions with the actual text. Yeah, because then, of course, you've got Jane Monty Griffiths in the middle there playing Titus, who, uh, you know, is a very experienced classical Shakespeare actor. Did she take you under her wing in terms of text and Shakespeare or were you kind of left um, to your own devices to to figure out what you needed to say? Uh, No, absolutely. She totally took me under her wing and uh, and all the um, other, um, the younger cast members who were a part Mm -hmm. of the production. Um, and it was it was amazing. Uh, it was it was a, it was really a masterclass in Shakespeare, and I feel so grateful for that experience because yeah. just learning about how you um, you color words and how you like I, I don't know any other word to describe it other than you like you ping like parts of the text because as the actor mm-hmm. you're the person carrying the meaning for the audience. You yeah. you're the ones who are relaying the text to them, and it's mm-hmm. ultimately up to them what they interpret from what you say, but. If you choose the right words, I guess, then the the essence of the text can be conveyed to the audience. And that was, yeah. yeah, that was an incredible experience. Yeah, and the right emphasis on the right words and um, making sure, that obviously, that you're driving all the way through to the end of each line yes. and all of these technical aspects. Um, you know, actors spend years and years training and working on this stuff. You had to put it all together very, very quickly. Did you, did you have to do a lot of work at home? I mean, how, how did you balance that with, you know, you're still at school. <laughs> you're still literally in year, I think you were in year 10 at the time. Yeah. How did you balance your life there? 
Well, I mean, look, it, it, was, it was intense in the rehearsal room. Like, it was like, it was, you like had to be very productive because it was a short period of time. We had to absorb this stuff quite quickly. But we did have so much support around us. When I went home, I think I was pretty exhausted most days. So I don't yeah. know if I got much work done or if I did much line learning afterwards. Mm. I, I must have. I, I, I actually can't <laughs> remember. I, I must have somehow managed it. I think I also brought a lot of homework into the rehearsal room with me. Okay, so that was sure, that sure. was my other um, mechanism for um, mm. trying to, well, I guess, my balancing um, act. Mm. Yeah, that mm. was that was what saw me through. And also, I suppose, because it, it is, I mean, Titus was intense and the images in it were very intense, overwhelming for the audience. I mean, we had a couple of audience members fainting, yeah. uh, you know, let alone for those who were up on stage and experiencing it night after night. So... How do you, you know, and we've been talking a lot uh, to actors recently about de-rolling and mental health. How do you leave that behind when you leave the theatre? Oh, wow. Well, I I, mean, I think that's where the destruction of school does come in handy because yep. you have you have those deadlines of assessment tasks and exams and you just, you, you just have to compartmentalise. You've got a deadline, you've got to work towards that. So you've mm -hmm. got to shift your focus um, over. So yeah. I think that that was a real help to kind of switch things up and get my head out of the kind of the graphic goriness that was Titus in that mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. But also I think the way we also discussed the text in the rehearsal room and how we broke it down and we were all there to listen to what one another had to say about the text yeah. and, and about the images that we were creating. So it even though they were very graphic because it was such a safe space that we were in it, yeah, right. it never there was never a point where the goriness of the images or for me they never felt like suffocating or overwhelming okay. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, you know good to have a support network around you of course at home but but also in the rehearsal room and in and within the company um to be able to 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 see you through because i think too many actors kind of suffer it out alone they go no no I'll be fine and they don't realize that this um, that they're getting overwhelmed by by the content by the subject matter yeah. especially when it comes to murder death um, assault and, and abuse of young people on stage uh, you know you also were in a play called Blackbird which was very very famous um, back in I think 2006 2007 um, yeah. won a lot of awards in the UK and then came to um, the Sydney Theatre Company, and then to the um, Sydney Fringe. What was it? Were you in the Sydney Fringe yes. uh, production? Yeah. Again, a, a, a play with themes, with dark themes of of um, of child abuse and so on. Did did that stay with you at all? Delving into that play. Yeah. Well, I well I was a little bit younger when I did the that play for the Sydney Fringe Festival, and mm. um, I mean, I, I I understood it, I guess, on a intellectual level I understood what was going on but it yeah. didn't hit me as hard then I think reflecting back on it now I go wow that was a really perverted twisted story it didn't it didn't fully sink in at the time and I I, I mean I, the experience of being in that in that production was really interesting but the storyline itself is like wow that's really really dark and I yeah, dark, I, yeah. I don't understand now how I wasn't affected by it but okay. I, I, <laughs> I kind of wasn't at the time but also mm. what I would also add to, to what I said before is the great thing about Titus was having those other um, younger cast members working with me, yeah, um, who were the, well, yeah. who were the same age as me, um, mm. and we formed a really, um, really close um, friendship amongst us. Nice. So that was a that was a really important support network as well. 
You're listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm James Evans, and my guest today is Grace Truman. Now, Grace, if you think back to the early years of your schooling, at some point Shakespeare was introduced to you. You're in year 12 now, but somewhere along the lines, was it primary school? Was it early high school? When did you first encounter Shakespeare? Um, well, in school, I think it was really, it was really year seven. I think in year six, I might've found a book in the primary school library, which was a, an abridged version of Midsummer Night's Dream, which I might've read, but it was really, it was really year seven that it, um, it really kicked in because my school actually ran what was called a Shakespeare boot camp, And it was a Mm -hmm. week where the, our studies were given over to just Look, looking at Shakespeare and just doing Shakespeare, just yep. doing Shakespeare and <laughs> right. learning and appreciating um, that that text. And by the end of the week, we got to put on a performance. So we had our four different house groups, and each house did a kind of a different production. So nice. there was Romeo and Juliet. Um, I think what else did we have? I think we had the Tempest. Might have mm. had um, the Scottish play, and my um, my house group. We actually did um, more of a. I want to say mishmash, but there's, that's not yeah, the right sure. word. Yeah. Something like that. But around the seven ages of man play. And nice. Um, nice. we, so we looked at the different seven ages and I was given the task of um, doing the Orlando monologue about the schoolboy. Okay, um, okay. And yeah. that mm-hmm. was an incredible experience. And also getting to perform that as well was such, um, was such an honour. And mm. also growing up in a household where English literature and performance was such a big yeah. part of our lives. Um, my dad had always desperately wanted to be a part of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Desperately. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there was yeah. always an appreciation of mm. Shakespeare in my house. And oh, I think okay. because of that, I was, I was always kind of interested in Shakespeare and I didn't really have that experience, which I know some people in um, my age have had of finding Shakespeare either impenetrable or asked why it's relevant. I've just always mm. thought it was beautiful. See, that's wonderful. And that's because you were introduced to it in a practical way, up on your feet, yeah. as as it should be. You know, I think too often uh, young people are introduced to Shakespeare, sitting around a table, slogging through it, trying to get through the whole play. And of course, then it's impenetrable. Of course, yeah. they give up. And um, so, so it's wonderful that you had that positive experience early on. Yeah. You mentioned your dad, uh, Jeff Truman, there, who sadly passed away when you were 10 years old, and that's, what, seven or eight years ago now, right? Yeah. Now, he was a great actor. He was a wonderful writer and, of course, a beautiful human being. And you created, with mum, with Julie Money, your mum, this wonderful web series, Amazing Grace, which is so sweet and so simple because it just follows the character of Grace and as she goes about her everyday life, different things come up for her and she just turns to the left and there's Benny Wood <laughs> playing your dad yep. and just and and just says, you know, WWJD, what would Jeff do? And he's always there with a piece of advice. Do, do you feel that in yourself, that you, that you can um, reflect on your dad's memory and, and think about what he would do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I get to do that, uh, particularly in the writing process for our series. That's that's one of my favorite. I mean, there's filming, which is I, I love as well, but writing it and getting to reflect on dad's stories and just having that discussion with mum. And um, I get to hear stories which I've never heard before I, or I mm-hmm. never had the chance to hear before this point. Um, mm. And, oh, I 
I, that connection is so um, is so important for me because when I I was ten or a few months after my dad had passed away. I started losing memories of him and that was the mm. scariest thing for me. Mm. And also not what anyone tells you about loss or grief and um, not what others expect of you at that time as well. They mm. um, they uh, have an image of what a grieving child is going to be like and I couldn't match that because I couldn't remember things. Mm. And so that mm. was why we really made this project. And so, yes, through making this the project, I feel even, uh, yeah, I feel a really strong connection to my dad. That is so wonderful, Grace. You know, what a wonderful way to, to to remember him and to increase your connection to him. You know, my dad passed away when I was 39, and, and so I can't imagine um, how hard it must have been for you and how hard it is for you. And it seems to me that uh, within Shakespeare's works, as we pass through different stages of our lives, I think I might have mentioned this before on this podcast, but it's worth mentioning again. As we pass through different stages of our life, there seems to be a Shakespeare line or moment or character that that suddenly comes into sharp focus for us. And I, I remember um, reading Hamlet again after my father had passed away, and and that, which is the portrait of a, of a grieving young mm-hmm. person. And uh, that line where he turns to Horatio and he says, he was a man, take him for all in all, I shall not look upon his like again. And I thought that was such a wonderful, powerful, but simple way of describing someone that you loved. Yeah, I think that's why Shakespeare is so relevant because you can reliably turn to him to articulate any emotion that you're feeling. And (laughs) I, I, I know for me personally, when I feel an emotion really deeply, it's when I feel most inarticulate. I do not know how to describe the emotion to someone else, but you can yeah. turn to Shakespeare and he's captured it so beautifully. Mm. And there is so much comfort in reading a character who is feeling the exact same way as you. And that, that's mm. a great thing to, that's a great thing to draw on. Yeah, look, that's, that's so true, isn't it? And now more than ever, when we're in the midst of this unprecedented time of global upheaval, a pandemic that seems to have no end. All of these new variants just keep coming out and we've got this vaccine, but we don't know how long that's going to take to work. How has that been for you navigating through the final year of your studies, doing your HSC, doing it, studying advanced English, physics, chemistry, biology, all of these very, very difficult subjects with the shadow of this pandemic over you? Look, uh, this it's been really this term particularly. It's been quite up and down. Um, I think up until this point, we've had a really good chunk of the year where we were, well, it was such a different world. We were COVID-free or not COVID-free, yeah. but almost. About, and yeah. Yeah. looking looking back at the beginning of this year and all the things that were at school and outside of school and all the things we were doing. I, w- I went to a concert earlier this year where there were mm. thousands of people and mm-hmm. no no mm-hmm. masks and no social distancing and it's such a different world. How quickly things have changed is, um, is it, it does make your head spin a bit mm. and mm. I think now kind of towards the pointy end of things, it's the, the limbo factor and yeah, um, the yeah. uncertainty and trying to stay motivated when there's no end in sight. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. there is the HSC to work towards, but everything feels so iffy at the moment. It's it's hard to stay grounded. 
I yeah, guess. no, I think you're absolutely right. And for you in particular, I think, Grace, because you've got so many things on your plate. I mean, you've got your studies, but you're also a performer. And then you've also just been awarded uh, this um, community service award by the governor of New South Wales, uh, Margaret Beasley. And you're going to give a presentation at a UNESCO World Conference on kindness. What is the gist of your presentation? Well, the gist of my presentation is a little bit about what we spoke about already, which is the time around when my dad died and how my understanding of kindness changed. And like it, it was transformed really at that time because mm. of the kindness that my mum and I were shown by our community mm. yeah, and yeah, yeah. The, um, the kindness that can be displayed by, by everyone um, because kindness, I think, is something that's inherent um, to all of us. But I kind of talk about how along with the good, there's also the bad. And I think we've seen that through the pandemic. There's been amazing kindness and an overwhelming sense of community. But there's yeah. also been so many examples of selfishness and hatred. Mm. Um, and so I guess I, I kind of raise the question of what if we had a society where we were always surrounded with kind people. And yeah. is that unrealistic or why should that be unrealistic? You know, it's a fascinating provocation, absolutely. And, you know, obviously being in the in the business that I'm in, I think the arts and performance and theatre have a big part to play in that, uh, to, to reflecting back to us who we are as human beings uh, and also showing us what we could be. I, I think that's what Shakespeare does best is actually showing us a society that we could inhabit both negative and positive and saying, right, well, what do you want it to be? Who do you want to be in the future? Yes. Yeah. Well, um, I've, I'm studying this year for English, um, King Henry the Fourth, part one, and yeah, you right. definitely yeah. see that with how, like, what should leadership look like in the future? Um, mm. Yeah. What, what will, what will that be? Isn't that fascinating? And and as a very different character to his dad, King Henry, who is all about very strong leadership and that you should show a firm hand to your allies and to your enemies. And, uh, of course, young Prince Hal is more about just being among the people, being one of the people and leading from within. There's a very different style to that, isn't there? Yes. Okay, let me ask you a couple of questions about Henry IV then because, you know, you're studying, <laughs> you're studying it for your HSC, so oh. you'd better know. Mm. Uh, Prince Hal, in his big opening soliloquy, I know you all in Willowile uphold the unyoked humour of your idleness. Is he really just being a, a cynic and using all of his mates to get to the top? Or is this just a, a, a light bulb moment for him where he suddenly realises, oh, I'd better change and be someone else? It does. Oh, for me, it feels a bit premeditated. I think looking at the lines, and I mean, this is, I guess, from a very much an English advanced student perspective, the, <laughs> the really end stop lines, the really, um, the really clear images he draws, um, He's he's thought this through. This is a very well-structured argument that he's, or not even argument, but I guess a presentation um, mm. for the audience that he's constructing here. So it does, it feels for me premeditated. Another uh, kind of interpretation that I've heard of this speech is that it's almost like he's addicted to this lifestyle of being um, in the pubs and around full staff and that he's yeah. almost trying to convince himself that um, he will get over this. Like this, he'll, this will, this too will pass. Yeah, whether it's actually ever going to eventual eventuate is um, mm. kind of questionable. But yeah, no. To me, I think I, it does feel a bit cold and calculating. Yeah, fair enough. And then his dad 
is very manipulative, isn't he? When he when he's talking about Hotspur and he's saying, "Gee, I wish Hotspur was my son, not you." Why do you think Howe falls for a tactic like that? Uh, I think there's well, it, there is power in that contrast between Hotspur and Howe, mm. and that um, that dichotomy. They're the two extremes. I feel like Howe is the future and Hotspur is the past. Yeah, right. And yeah. Um, King Henry the Fourth is really. He's kind of clinging on to those um, those past notions of chivalry and honor, mm. and how trying to emerge into the future has to contend with those and challenge those, which he does when he challenges his father, but also has to respect those and learn from those as well in order to move forward. I think um, so. I think that's why he does fall in line eventually um, with his father, or certainly for the um, the battle at Shrewsbury. And what do you make of the relationship between Hal and Falstaff? Uh, is it already starting? Because we know that by the end of Henry the Fourth, Part Two, it's it's completely fallen apart. And then at the beginning of Henry the Fifth, we hear that Falstaff's died of a broken heart. Um, but do we already see the cracks in that relationship? Do you think at the beginning of this play? Totally, totally. It seems like a friendship. Or, or I in class we watched. A production, um, an RSC production of Henry the Fourth, Part One, uh, as a video, and it, like it is played like friendly banter. But you look at the lines and you go, "That's really cruel." What Hal's yeah. saying to Falstaff, that's like, totally, that's, yeah. that's mm. that really cuts deep. And I mm-hmm. think also looking at Falstaff's line, it, it, he he is actually aware of it. He he seems to know his place in this thing. He does know that he is going to be discarded mm. at any moment. He mm. he's making the most of it while he can, no doubt. Mm. But he, he he plays the victim. He he knows he's the butt of the joke and he's willing to go along with that for yes. now um, bef- yeah. before he's kicked off. Hey um you know there's an episode of Amazing Grace where you look at stage fright. And obviously you've done a lot of performances. You've performed at the Sydney Opera House. You've done professional performances. Have you ever personally experienced stage fright? Not to the extent I think that we show it in Amazing Grace, Mm -hmm. but I think there's always anxiety going into a performance. I remember with with Titus, there was a big curtain that we had down before before the scene of um of of Titus or the first scene of Titus was really revealed to the audience and I had to I was in amongst this kind of big kind of skirt full of rubble and I had it kind of assumed a position within that and you you do you feel your heart racing but you've also got to try and get into character you can yeah. you can hear the video which was quite a graphic i guess um representation of someone pulling out a tongue um yeah. at the front of the audience yeah. and the audience responding to that oh, yeah. um mm-hmm. so it's you cut you how you cut compartmentalize that and then know that you have to be on pretty quickly um and you you do have to and, and as it gets closer you know also the timing of um, of your opening and as it gets closer and closer and closer, you do feel your heart beating faster and faster. Um, yep. uh, but I guess my other experience of uh, stage fright was doing Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam because oh, yeah. um, in both productions, I opened the show and I opened the show singing. Um, mm. And oh. I, um, when I opened the show singing, I also usually came through some sort of window or door that I kind of uh, flung myself out a little bit. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so that was that was quite... 
That was yeah. quite daunting. And particularly the first run of the show where we had the beautiful Vivaldi Four Seasons as the house music. Yeah, right. And it was beautiful, <laughs> gorgeous. I absolutely loved it. But um, it was such a different pitch to what I was meant to be singing. So I had to try and quietly <laughs> backstage um, keep repeating my note to myself so I didn't lose it um, when I went on and make nice, a total nice. fool of myself um, as the opening. Grace, you're the first person from, uh, I think it's called Generation Z, that uh, I've interviewed on this program. <laughs> what do you think is going to be the relevance of Shakespeare for your generation and beyond, a generation that is entirely immersed in the digital world? I think what's going to be relevant is the way that Shakespeare encourages us to understand um, because there's not only characters who we can relate to because he articulates our emotions so beautifully, there's also characters who I know I could never agree, agree with. They're just, their arguments, like they make my blood boil, but <laughs> they, the way that they challenge me is so engaging and it does make me have to understand other perspectives and other parts of the world. And, mm. and I think moving forward, we, we are all going to need to understand different perspectives and we're all going to need to listen. And I mean, I think that's, that's now and that's, that's forever. Um, so I think that's what Shakespeare is going to help us do in the future. I love that, Grace. I love it. Okay, it's time for the final five. Five quick questions. We need five quick answers. Here we go. Number one, which do you prefer, the lover, the villain, or the fool? The fool. Easy. Perfect. <laughs> What's your most underrated Shakespeare play? Well, see, I don't think my my breadth of knowledge is broad enough yet with Shakespeare to be able to pick an underrated play. So That's all right. I, it's going to be on my bucket list, basically, to read as okay. many Shakespeare plays as I can after the HSC. But um, I guess for the moment, I'm going to say As You Like It. Sure. Perfect. Your favourite artist who you'd love to work with one day you haven't worked with already? Well, I know a lot of people on the show already have said Kate Mulvaney, and I would definitely like to work with Kate Mulvaney as well. Yeah. Um, okay. But I think for one actor I'd really like to work with is Emma Thompson. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. What is a dream Shakespeare role you'd love to play? Rosalind, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, Kate from Taming the Shrew. Yeah. And maybe Ariel in The Tempest. Oh, great. Great selection. Thank you. And finally, if you weren't an actor, what do you think you'd be doing? Uh, well, I would try to, uh, I'd be trying to share my passion for science, really. Um, science communication is, um, I think, what I'd love to do. So you want to be a science communicator. What's that? What is that? Uh, well, a science communicator is someone, think David Attenborough, um, Dr. Carl, Brian mm. Cox, people who create programs that share their love of science um, with as broad an audience as possible, really. Um, and that's, uh, for me, I love science because you get to be a little bit of a sponge. You get to absorb all these incredible facts and also um, see the experiments that prove them. And then you get to go mm. out in the world and look at things in a totally new way and see how incredible it is that everything fits together in this um, symbiotic way and mm. It just, you get to experience that. And that's how lucky we are, all are to be alive and living and experiencing all this. Grace, I love your positivity, your optimism. It is a tonic. Thank you so much for joining me today on Speak the Speech. Thank you so much, James. Well, that's it for season two of Speak the Speech. 
As we record today from our respective homes, many parts of Australia are still in lockdown. It's a challenging time for everyone, and we have certainly felt that in the performing arts industry. At Bell Shakespeare, we're so sad that our beautiful production of Hamlet has had to be postponed for a second time. But we turn our eyes to 2022 with renewed hope. Hamlet will be back, I promise, and Bell Shakespeare will finally take up its long-awaited permanent home at Pier 23, the brand new engine room for our national program. I'm going to take a break from this podcast for a bit, but we'll return with new guests and new speeches in 22. My thanks to Camillo Zanoni, as always, who's lovingly edited every single episode and who also wrote our cool theme music, which I love. Thanks also to my Bell Shakespeare colleagues. This podcast is a team effort and Emily Stokes and Emma White in particular work tirelessly behind the scenes to make it happen. And finally, a huge thank you to you, our audience and supporters, for sticking with us through this difficult time. Things will get better. Isn't it Claudio in Measure for Measure who says, the miserable have no other medicine but only hope? <laughs> or, or perhaps you prefer Richmond and Richard III, true hope is swift and flies with swallow's wings. Kings it makes gods and meaner creatures kings. Stay safe, everyone. See you in the theatre soon.